their Bible study is, Lord, we do want to be free from distractions tonight. Um, Lord, we want to be able to focus on your word. So help us be seated. Help us uh, be attentive. Help us to be ready to, to feed upon the word of God. And Lord, I do pray that tonight that you would touch every heart that is here. I know that you want to. We would come with expectation for, for the one who perhaps is discouraged that, that you would bring encouragement to the one who perhaps needs uh, direction and wisdom, that you would do that, to the one who perhaps uh, needs to be lifted up because they feel so down, that, Lord, you would do that incredible work as we study your word, as we go through these psalms that bring great encouragement to us. And, Lord, we desire for you to work it within our hearts. And, Lord, leave this place with a joyous heart. So we commit this time in the study of your word, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Psalm 84 is to the chief musician and on an instrument of Gath, a psalm of the sons of Korah. And the psalmist writes, How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. In verse 3, even the sparrow, uh, sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. And even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, and blessed are those who dwell in your house, and they will still be praising you. And we have that positive meditation. So the psalmist here in Psalm 84 delights in the Lord. He longs for fellowship with the Lord. And, and that's the question that we can ask ourselves in the honesty of our hearts here tonight. Do we long to have fellowship with the Lord? Do we long to, to even as the psalmist cries out here, that my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God, my soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord, speaking of being in fellowship with Him. And that's my prayer for, for you and your family, for, for me and my family, for this church family, that especially as we are getting close to the holidays and only a couple weeks and we're going to be celebrating Thanksgiving and then into the Christmas. Christmas season and New Year, and we can uh, have so many things that are on our plate. It's a busy time of the year, and, and here at the church, as I just read the bulletin, there's so many things that are taking place, and good things, with food boxes and OCC and, and other things that are going to be done. I was meeting with the staff yesterday, and we we're going through the schedule and it took us a little while to go through it, and, and it was exciting. It was, you know, interesting. And, and when we're going to decorate the church for Christmas and all these things that are taking place here in the next couple weeks. And it can be so fun. It can be so busy. But what can happen, it can also be distracting. And what I want to be reminded of is that, Lord, I want to, in this holiday season and in all seasons that I just desire to, to want to know you more and have fellowship with you. And what can happen in our busyness, and all of us are busy in one way or another, as you uh, have uh, things that are taking place in your life, maybe some end-of-the-year projects that need to be done, or uh, students have work and papers and tests that will be coming up. We have uh, things that we have to do for the holidays. There's baking, and there's shopping, and there's errands to run, and there's cards to get out, and there's all these things, again, that are very much uh, a part of our lives that we enjoy doing, but they take up a lot of time. 
And may we always take the time in our hearts to say, Lord, I want to know you. I want to just spend time with you. Lord, I just want to be one that was like David. Remember David in Psalm 27, he said, One thing that I desire of the Lord, that I may seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. The most important thing for any of us is to know him more and to love him and to fellowship with him. That's what he desires. And I know that the Lord says to me at times, Jeff, I'm not so much interested in your busyness. I mean, it's a good thing to serve the Lord. And it's a good thing to to be busy and, and to enjoy the holidays and be with family. Those are all good things. But let's not forget that the most important thing is to spend time with him. And to have a heart that just longs for him. And that's what I want to be able to say more of. I can hear the heart of the psalmist. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. It's more than, than just being busy with service and busy with church and busy with everything else. But Lord, I want you and to know you and to cry out for you within my heart and in my soul. So here the psalmist is saying that. And then in verse 5, blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it spring and the rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength and each one appears before in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. And then that meditation once again. So our strength, as we know, being told by the psalmist, is in the Lord. And here, the valley of Baca, it might read in your translation that the valley of weeping, uh, we know that it's speaking of a place of difficulty and pain, which we all pass through that valley, don't we, at some time in our life. Whether it deals with personal matters, family matters, whether it deals with our health, or our employment, our business, whatever it might be, we all go through that valley of Baca, that valley of difficulty and pain, which brings weeping to us, doesn't it? And we need to always remember that the Lord is our strength and he is our comfort, as David would write as well in Psalm 23, that he's the one that leads us beside the still waters. He is the one that, that comforts our soul. And he's the one that desires to refresh us and give us strength. And, and it is hard and difficult when we go through those times and through that journey of the Valley of Baca. But the Lord is there. And that's what I pray that we would remember that as he is our strength, that, Lord, it would cause me, as he began this psalm, to say that, Lord, I long for you. You see, what can happen to me, what can happen to any of us, the tendency can be that when we go through difficulties, that it kind of, we drift away from the Lord. We think that the Lord doesn't care, or perhaps we're just so troubled, uh, we get so focused on the problems, uh, we're trying to figure things out, um, and it, it is very much weighing heavy on our hearts and our minds, and it's really important that we say, Lord, I need to take the time to be in fellowship with you and to seek you and to find that comfort that comes only from you. And that's what the Lord desires to do. So here we see that, that the psalmist is, is acknowledging, when I go through that valley, that they go from strength to strength, verse 7, each one appears before God in Zion. And, and it is important that as we appear before the Lord, knowing that strength from strength will come each and every day as we look to him. And then we read in verse 9 that, O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. 
for a day in your court is better than a thousand. And I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. We know here that as uh, he talks about the tents of the wickedness, it's, it's speaking of those who are with those who are in a prominent place, sitting at the table. And he says here to psalmist, a day in your court is better than a thousand elsewhere. A thousand in, in, you know, the prominence of the world or wherever it might be. And I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in that prominent place in the tents of wickedness. But you see, it reminds me so much of what Jesus would say to his disciples. I was reading in my devotion this morning in Luke chapter 22 in that upper room that Jesus had washed the disciples' feet. He has served them. And then those disciples were arguing who is going to be the greatest. And Jesus would turn to them and he would say to them that which is better for you to, to serve those seated at the table or be the one that's at the table that is seated, being served. And Jesus' answer to them is it's better that you be the one that is serving those at the table in that place of servanthood, in that place of serving others. In other words, I just washed your feet you be one that, that you take the example that I've given to you, as he would say to them, and you wash others' feet as well. And if you want to be great in the kingdom, then you're not like the ones who lord over. But to be great in the kingdom is to be the servant of all. And to be close to the Lord. And that's what delights the heart of the Lord. And we're going to talk about it on Sunday as we're in chapter 2 of the book of Philippians. And Paul's talking to a church that he very much loved, that was very close to him. And there was division. There was difficulty. There was uh, strife that was taking place. And he begins to address that. And he says to them that this is how you can have unity and it's not through selfish ambition it's not through conceit it's not through pride it's not through lording over it's not you know this is my agenda this is what i want but he says that unity is going to come through humility and as we humble ourselves and as we serve others and as we minister to others the lord sees that as being great in his kingdom in the kingdom of god Serving others, other-centered is what we're going to talk about, not being self-centered. And so here the psalmist is, is writing, I, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. I, I'd rather be with you, Lord. I'd rather be close to you. I'd rather just be in fellowship with you and serving you than be in that place where others might think it's an exalted place, the tents of the wickedness, but it's not. In verse 11, for the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. And no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. I love this verse here. That no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And in this psalm here, we see that the Lord, we can trust in him. That he is good. And we can look to him that he's not going to withhold anything good for us to those who walk uprightly. You know, it reminds me of what Paul would write in the book of Romans in chapter 8. Chapter 8 of Romans, I think, is just a very, very rich chapter, one of the richest chapters in all of the Bible. And he's talking as he's wrapping up this section about sanctification, you know, and, and as he's talking about glorification, then he's talking about God's everlasting love for us. 
And he says in verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And the implication there is, how shall he not freely give us all good things? And we can trust that the Lord is going to do what is good in our lives and not withhold that which is good. Now, sometimes we think that he is when we don't get something. We can pray for something, and we pray for this, and and we're saying, Lord, why are you withholding this from me? And we don't fully understand it because he is righteous and true in all his decisions. And the day is going to come when we're all going to be in heaven together, and we're going to say that together. Righteous and true are your decisions. Righteous and true, Lord, are your judgments. You're right on. And we may not fully understand what the Lord is doing in our life on this side of eternity. But when we get on the other side, we're going to look at it and say, it's good. And you didn't withhold anything good from me. And sometimes when we feel like, Lord, why this loss? And why this difficult valley of Baca that I'm going through? And why the discouragement? And, and it seems like I'm not getting anywhere. And Lord, I prayed for this and I prayed for that. The Lord, he sees you and hears you, and he is your strength, and he desires for you to just draw closer and to know this promise here, no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. I may not understand it right now, Lord, why this isn't happening or why this was taken away or why this difficulty, but Lord, I know that I can trust in you, that you are good. And how do we know that? Well, Paul answered it in Romans chapter 8. He said, He who did not even spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. And he's already given us the very best, hasn't he? He's given us his son who didn't even spare him. And if we can trust him with our salvation because he gave us his son, know that we can trust him in our lives presently and what he is doing in our life. And we may not understand what he is doing, but we can go and we can look to that and we can trust in that which we do understand. And that is that your love is everlasting, Lord. It's unsearchable. It's indescribable. So Paul ends that section by saying, you know, what can separate us from the love of God? I'm convinced nothing can. And his love remains with you. And it is his love for you that is motivated and working in your life. So I pray that you would always understand that. I I know that uh, a lot of us, we can look back at our lives, and particularly those of us who are a little bit older, and there were things that we prayed for that we're thankful that, Lord, you didn't say yes. So the Lord, he answers prayer. He'll say yes when we pray for something, and it's wonderful when he says yes, isn't it? Sometimes he'll say wait, and it's hard to wait, but we need to learn to wait on the Lord. Because the Lord says, I got my perfect timing. And in that time of waiting on him, he's working in us and through us and ministering to us. So there's times where we wait, but there's other times where he says no. And the reason he says no is because he's working in eternity's perspective. He says no at times because he knows that thing will be harmful. And I think a lot of us that, that we know we can look back and we can say, thank you, Lord, that you said no at this particular time to this particular request, because I know that as I look back at it now, it wasn't good for me, or perhaps he has something better. 
so we can trust in him, as the psalmist writes, that the Lord will give grace and glory, and no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And then in verse 12, as we finish the psalm, O Lord of hosts, bless us the men who trust in you. And then Psalm 85, to the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah. And Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin. Shalah, that is the pause. You have taken away all of your wrath, and you have turned from me the fierceness of your anger. So the psalm speaking of the return of the Jews after 70 years of captivity in Babylon. And a lot of you, you know the history behind it, as it was uh, the Jews, the uh, Judah, the house of Judah that went off into captivity, three waves of it, uh, 605 B.C., there goes Daniel and some of the young men of, of Judah. And then in 597 B.C., there goes Ezekiel and more that would be taken to Babylon. And then finally in 586 B.C., there came Nebuchadnezzar and his armies and destroyed Jerusalem, as we've discussed going through some of these psalms. We know that the city was leveled and Solomon's grand temple was destroyed, and it remained that way. There was death and devastation and destruction. But then, as we know, that at the end of the seven years of captivity, that they would come back into the land. It was Cyrus that would bring and make the command from the Medo-Persian Empire you can read in Daniel chapter 5 how the Lord brought the Babylonian Empire to an end. There's Belshazzar having a feast with the thousands of his lords, and they're toasting to the gods of uh, Babylon, to the gold and silver and wood and stone and all of this. And they were actually using the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem and brought back to Babylon. They were mocking the true and the living God. And all of a sudden, there was a handwriting on the wall. A big hand showed up. It was the hand of God. And it wrote on the wall, and, and he was very frightened, Belshazzar, as he saw that. And he cried out to his uh, musicians and the astrologers and soothsayers and all of them, come and interpret the handwriting, and they couldn't. And it was Daniel that came out, and he would interpret the handwriting on the wall. And he would say, many, many tekel you farces, is what it says. In other words, Belshazzar that you've been found wanting and you have fallen short. And Belshazzar, the kingdom's going to be taken from you tonight and you're going to fall and it's going to be given to the Medes and the Persians. You're a dead man, Belshazzar, you and your lords here. And what happened is Cyrus, as it prophesies there in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah says that Cyrus in chapter 44 is, is my instrument. And, and what Cyrus and the Medes and the Persians did is they surrounded the mighty wall of Babylon. It seemed like there was no one that could get into Babylon. They locked the doors, the outer walls shut tight. But what happened was as the Euphrates rivers ran underneath the wall, what Cyrus did is he diverted the flow of the Euphrates River. And as he did that, it was quite an engineering feat of that day. The Medo's Persian army just walked underneath the uh, wall there as the riverbed was dried up. And they went in and they took over Babylon. And it was Daniel that prophesied that. And Daniel would also be a leader uh, under Cyrus and, and Darius in that reign. And Cyrus makes the decree as you're going to be my instrument, to give that decree in 536 B.C. that the Jews can come back 
They can come back to, to Judah and build their temple. And so that's what Zerubbabel does. As you go into the book of Ezra, chapters 1 through 6, talks about how Zerubbabel, the civil leader, and, and it was Joshua, the high priest, brought about 50,000 people. And they came to Jerusalem, and it was difficult. It was very hard. The city was burnt. Stones laid all over the place. And what they did is they cleared off where the, the altar was of Solomon's temple, and they built the altar so they can do the sacrifices and uh, do the burnt offerings and the morning and evening sacrifices and worship the Lord in that way. And then they began to build the foundation of the temple, and the work stopped. And, and Zerubbabel was discouraged, and Joshua was too, and that's where Zechariah the prophet was ministering. And he comes and he tells a message to Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, that the hands that started the temple are going to be the hands that finished it. And Zerubbabel, don't despise the day of small things, and, and it's going to be completed, this temple that's been started, but it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And why am I telling you this? Is because tonight, that as we talk about that there is that returning from the captivity and the difficult time that they had, and it would extend even after that, because after that, Ezra, he would come back about 60 years later. He's trying to restore the spiritual condition of the nation. And in Nehemiah, he led a third wave back. Just as there is three waves of captivity, there is three waves of return. And Nehemiah comes back in 445 B.C., and, and the city's still in rubble. There's no wall around the city. And the people were so discouraged. And you see, it can be a very difficult after we are free from some captivity. After we're free from uh, sin and the power of sin and, and something that's held us captive and something that's held us in bondage. And, and it can be difficult challenges that we face. And we need to know that God wants to work, that he is working, that he desires to 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 do an incredible thing in your life. But we can get discouraged just as they got discouraged. So that's what the psalmist is writing about here. And we read, Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sins. You have taken away all your wrath, and you have turned from the fierceness of your anger, as we read. So we're to be thankful that we are a forgiven people. As the psalmist gives thanks, and the greatest need of every, anyone is to be forgiven, right, through Jesus Christ. He has freed us from the, uh, being captive to sin in the world, and he hasn't appointed us to wrath. As the psalmist says, you've taken away all of your wrath. They've come back. They've been forgiven, but it was still difficult, and they needed to be reminded that wrath wasn't going to come to them. You know, we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, that Paul, that he's writing to the Christians there that were going through a very difficult time. The church at Thessalonica were some of the earliest Christians that were persecuted, and, and they needed to be encouraged. And the Lord would say to them that God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul writes that to them, they needed to know that you're not appointed to wrath. You're not appointed to the day of the Lord, which is a time of darkness, but you're children of the light. 
And it comes through our Lord Jesus Christ as he went to the cross, as he took the wrath for you and for me upon himself. As our sins were placed upon him as he hung on that cross. And he took the wrath, the punishment that you and I deserve as he died for us and in place of us. And so the psalmist is, is writing about this in verse 4. Restore us, O God, of your salvation and cause your anger towards us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. In Lamentations, I read it to you a couple weeks ago. Lamentation was written by Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, he writes it. He laments over the destruction of Jerusalem during that time of 586 B.C. It's a funeral for a city. As Jerusalem's being destroyed by the Babylonians. And so he's lamenting, lamentations. But he did not leave them without any hope. And he would say in chapter 3 that, that the mercies of God are new every morning. And his compassion fails not. God is a God of restoration. And verse 6 here, to revive again means to be renewed in life. Literally to live again. These guys, they needed to, to rebuild the temple. They needed to rebuild Jerusalem. They needed to establish spiritual priorities again. They desperately needed God working in their situation. And perhaps, just perhaps, that there is an area of your life that needs God's reviving and restoring. And we know that He is a God of restoration. He desires to to renew that area of your life. And it comes from him. Perhaps it needs to be renewed in the things of God. Some area of your life that you're struggling in. And the Lord desires to restore and to revive and work in your life as you look to him and trust in him. We want things to happen overnight or very quickly. And sometimes it doesn't happen, and oftentimes in the way or in the timing that we want it to. But know this, that God is working, just as he was working here. Nehemiah would come back almost 100 years later, and they were still discouraged, and he was still working. But God was faithful to see them through, and he'll be faithful to see you through. And in that area, that needs restoring, whatever it might mean for you, because he's the one that restores the years that the locusts have eaten, as he says in the book of Joel. So the psalmist is looking to him. In verse 8, I will hear what God the, the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. And mercy and truth have met together. Verse 10, righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall bring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and shall make his footsteps our pathway. I love these verses here because the psalmist is recognizing something that's very important for you and for me. Hear what the Lord has to say to you, and not only hearing it, but living it. And there is blessing when we hear the word of God and then we do the word of God. He wants to speak peace to us, as he writes in verse 8 here. I will hear what the Lord will speak. He will speak peace to his people and to his saints. 
We know that Jeremiah would say to those captives and that were off in Babylon, he would say that, I know my thoughts toward you, says the Lord. They're thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. He's our future and he's our hope. It's a verse that many of us are familiar with, but it's true. And as we look at God's word, hearing what he has to say, it will bring peace to us. As he says, mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. In other words, uh, mercy and truth go together. We know in John's gospel that we're told that grace and truth, that Jesus was full of grace and full of truth, unmerited favor of God and truth, they go together. He was the perfect harmony of grace and truth, and mercy and truth go together as well, not getting what we deserve. That's what mercy means, is he's merciful towards us. And as we extend that mercy and live in his truth and in righteousness and peace have kissed, living in righteousness, doing what the Lord wants us to do. James' epistle says, no, just be hearers of the word, but be a doer of the word. And know that as you do, that peace will then come in your life. And as this time of the year, we're going to be talking about peace and goodwill towards all, towards men. The way for you to have peace is to trust in him and to recognize his mercy and grace in your life and then walk in that truth and walk in righteousness, which means that we're walking in a right way, that, Lord, I desire, even as we know, to hear you and to do what your word has to say in my life because your ways are right and your ways are true. We're going to see in the next psalm here in just a minute that that's the prayer of David. I like what he has to say here in, in, um, as he says, um, to them in verse 8, to his people and to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. A woman came to Jesus in Luke chapter 7 and fell at his feet and was kissing his feet and washing his feet with her tears and drying them with her hair. Jesus was at the house of Simon the Pharisee and Simon and the religious leaders are sitting there and and Jesus knew what Simon was thinking. Simon didn't say it out loud, but Simon was thinking if he knew, if he was a prophet, he knew what kind of woman was touching her. And Jesus is just there. And I think I just picture it, that room and the religious leaders just in shock as this woman is just worshiping Jesus and crying and weeping. And Jesus would turn to Simon Say, Simon, you didn't greet me with a kiss. You didn't give me a basin to wash my my feet. You didn't greet me in this way. You were rude to me. But look at her. And the one who's forgiven much loves much. And we have been forgiven so much, haven't we? God's grace and his mercy. And he would turn to her. And he would say, your sins, which are many, are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It reminds me of later on after that in Jerusalem that the religious leaders, they brought this woman and threw her down right in front of Jesus and said, we caught her in the very act of adultery. The law says that she's to be stoned. What do you say, teacher, master? They thought they had Jesus backed in the corner and Jesus pretended like he didn't hear them. He's writing on the ground, and they kept pressing him. What do you say? 
She's to be stoned is what the law of Moses says. They thought they had him trapped if he said that, yeah, go ahead and stone her. Then the people would say he's not a friend of sinners. If he says that, that no, don't, then, then we can say that you're not one who's a keeper of the law. So, of course, you know the story how Jesus would say to them as he wrote on the ground. We don't know what he wrote. I have some ideas. But he would write on the ground. He said, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And they all dropped their rocks and they left. And there she is in her nakedness and in her, you know, being humiliated and shamed by these guys looking into the eyes of God himself. And he says, where's thy accusers? Who condemns you? No one. And he says, neither do I. Go your way and sin no more. I pray for us that we would take verse 8, that we would hear what the Lord has to say, what he wants to speak to us, that we can have peace in our lives and we can go in peace and that we would not turn back to folly. And the Lord brings forgiveness and love and mercy and grace. And he says, your faith has saved you. Go and sin no more. Don't get involved in sin and carnality and in the things and the pleasures of the world. Sin no more. I have a feeling that that woman of Luke chapter 7 and the one of John chapter 8, that they went their way and they lived for the Lord because they had a close encounter of the Lord and they worshiped the Lord. And that's my prayer again for us is that we would be worshipers of the Lord and just marvel at His grace and mercy that's been extended to us because mercy and truth have met together and righteousness and peace have kissed. And truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. And yes, the Lord, verse 12, will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him, and he shall make his footsteps our pathway. As verse 13, we see here that the Lord leads us. He is our pathway, and he desires for our path to be the right path in the good way. Well, Psalm 86, as we look at it, it's a prayer of David. Interesting that this is the only psalm in book three that's written by David. And once again, it's in a time of trouble and danger. And what is interesting about this psalm in Psalm 86, that every verse of this psalm is taken from another psalm. So it's a reiteration. Which shows me two things. Number one, that David knew the, the scripture, the word of God, even though he wrote a lot of these psalms. He's not afraid to write it down again, which reminds me how important it is that we know the Word of God. And then second of all, to not be afraid to reiterate the Word of God to ourselves and to others. You know, Peter, he would say, I won't be negligent to remind you of these things, though you be established in them. We're going to see Paul in the book of Philippians is going to say, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it's safe. And I pray that we would never come to the point of our lives where we feel like, oh, I've exhausted the Word of God, or I don't need to read my Bible. I've run into a few people like that. Oh, I've read the Bible. I went to Sunday school. I went to youth group. I went to church for 10 years. I know the Bible. 
Listen, I've been teaching the Bible for over 20 years, and I feel like I don't know the Bible as well as I should. There's so much more that I need to know that I can study to remember. Uh, Whenever I leave Calvary Live and I'm on my way home, I think, oh, I wish I would have said this. Oh, I wish I would have given that verse. Oh, how, you know, could I not think of that? And I'm always going through that. So David was one that he uses a verse from other psalms that he had written or what we read in the book of psalms and let's begin to look at this this prayer of david as he writes bow down your ear O lord hear me for i am poor and needy preserve my life for i am holy you are my god save your servant who trusts in you be merciful to me O lord for i cry to you all day long rejoice the soul of your servant for to you O lord i lift up my soul David writes in verse 5, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. David says, first of all, preserve my life. Verse 2, when he writes, I am holy, it's not a boast of arrogance. He's just recognizing that I belong to you, Lord. David recognizing that I'm poor and needing, and that's all of us. Jesus said, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And as we come, poor in spirit, recognizing our need for the Lord, for salvation, uh, for our lives as we journey through this life, oh, Lord, I am poor and needy. I pray that we would never come to the point of, uh, you know, I have abundance and I'm wealthy and I'm rich. And Jesus would rebuke a church in Revelation chapter 3. You probably know it, the, the church of Laodicea. They were the wealthy church. They seemed to have it all. And, and it was Jesus that said to them, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. He's talking to them about spiritually. Hey, we got it made. We got it easy. You know, I'm rich. But to realize that I am in need of the Lord. We are rich because of Jesus Christ. We are rich spiritually because we come to him. But blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we are poor and needy for Jesus. And as we are, his forgiveness and salvation is what brings richness to our lives. So we see here he, he's calling out to the Lord, uh, to, and we turn to him in our time of trouble, just as David is doing. And we read in uh, verse 6, that give ear, O Lord, to my prayer, and attend to the voice of my supplication. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon you, for you will answer me. Among the gods there is none like you, O Lord, nor is there any works like your works. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. So here, David's saying that there's only one true God, and I will worship you and glorify you. There's none like you. It's a statement of one who truly knows God, that he is great. There is no other. And who he is and what he does, there is none other. All the other gods are nothing. In verse 9, Dave speaking of when the Lord comes and rules and reigns over the earth and the nations will come and worship him. I love the insight of David. All the nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you. And you will do wondrous things. You alone are God. And then in verse 11, I love verses 11 and 12. 
Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forevermore. For great is your mercy towards me, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Not only preserve my life, but unite my heart. Lord, teach me your ways that I may walk in your truth. This was the prayer of David. So the question tonight for me, for you, is, is this our prayer? And I think that we can say yes. I, I think you can because you wouldn't be here otherwise. There's a lot of things that you could be doing on a Wednesday night. But I pray for not only Wednesday night, but every day that we would have a prayer, Lord, teach me your way that I may walk in your truth. And unite my heart, that means a singleness of heart. I don't want a divisive heart. I don't want an undivided heart. I want to be fully fixed on you, Lord, and and what is true to the Lord. Teach me your ways that I may walk in your truth and praise you. These are the characters of a person who truly has a heart for God. And Lord, I don't want to have a divided heart. There's a lot of things that can come into our lives that give us a divided heart. And the Lord desires for us to have a singleness of heart. Hey, how long are you going to be between two opinions that Elijah would say to the children of Israel there on Mount Carmel? If, you know, Baal is God, then worship him. If Jehovah is God, then worship him. But how long are you going to be between two opinions? They had a divided heart. And we need to be careful that we don't have a divided heart where we got kind of one foot in the world and another foot in the kingdom. You know, that's a miserable place to be. Do you realize that? Because when you're in the world, you got too much of God to be, you know, uh, you know where you're convicted in the world. And then you got so much of the world that... You know, you're convicted as you're trying to follow the Lord. It's just a miserable place to be. I want an undivided heart, Lord, towards you. To love you and to know your ways and to walk in your truth. To fear your name, Lord, and to praise you with all of my heart. And that's the key to having an undivided heart. To praise him with all of your heart and to know him with all of your heart. To love him with all of your heart. In verse 13 is an interesting verse. For great is your mercy towards me, and you have delivered me, my soul, from the depths of Sheol. Remember in Psalm 16 that it was David that wrote that messianic psalm. He wrote this concerning Jesus, that, that you shall not leave my soul in Sheol. And, and Peter would say in Acts chapter 2, as he said that David spoke about the resurrection of Jesus and there in Psalm 16. Well, here David understood not only is Jesus going to be resurrected, but we're going to be resurrected as well. As he says, you're not going to leave me there. You're going to deliver my soul from the depths of Sheol. In verse 14, O God, the proud have risen against me, and the mob of violent men have sought my life, and not, have not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are God, full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in mercy and truth. Does that ring a bell with you at all? Remember, Moses asked, you know, was told the name of, of God. He was told the name of God in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, that, that 
the Lord would say to them that I'm a Lord that's full of compassion and gracious and long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. And we know that he is. And then in verse 16, oh, turn to me and have mercy on me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed. Because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. So verse 5, you are good, Lord. Verse 10, you are great. Verse 15, that you're the God of compassion. Verse 17, a God of comfort. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for these psalms that we went through that are encouraging and a blessing, encouraging for us to just draw closer to you and to know you more, a desire to praise you and have a, a singleness of heart towards you. We don't want a divided heart. We don't want to be distracted by so many things that can come into our lives. And Lord, we do get busy. That's just part of life. But Lord, if we don't want to be in a place where we are not in that close fellowship with you and knowing you and longing for you. So Lord, I pray that for all of us, especially as we enter into a time of the year where it's a special time. and It's a wonderful time. But it can be a very busy time. But Lord, our priority would be with you. And just knowing you and loving you and praising you. And walking with you. And Lord, knowing we can trust in you if we're going through the valley of Baca. Of pain and difficulty. That you're our strength. And we can be thankful as, Lord, we come now to the communion table. We know that it's to remember what Jesus did for us in allowing his body to be broken and bloodshed for forgiveness of sin. So I want to pray, first of all, if there's anyone that maybe you're listening live stream or here in this building, that you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. He was not spared, but because of his love, for you, he went to the cross. That you be free from the captivity and bondage and death of sin. He's provided forgiveness. And as you come in faith and put in your faith in the Son of God who died for you and rose again from the grave, salvation comes. And a new beginning a new beginning in life. You'll become a new creation in Christ, a new person. And you have right relationship with the Father. If that's you, will you pray? The invitation is given to come and ask for forgiveness. To repent and ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Your life is not your own. And you pray, Jesus, I come to you just as I am a sinner and I ask that you would forgive me because you died on that cross for my sins and you rose again from the grave I know you're alive because you're speaking to my heart be my personal Lord and Savior I thank you for loving me and dying for me and freeing me from this world 
from the penalty of sin. I pray that you would free me from the power of sin in my life. Thank you for a new start, a new beginning, and for saving me. In Jesus' name. And if you prayed that prayer tonight as we conclude the service, I, I'm going to ask that you come up and pray with me after the service. But, but right now, as we go into a time of worship, that we right now, just as a psalmist, as we started out tonight, would say, my soul longs for you, Lord. Just right now, put aside the distractions of the day and what's going to happen tomorrow and all the other things. The dog needs to go out when I get home and i got to finish up work or whatever. Just for the next few moments, just focus on him and give him thanks. And as the communion elements are handed out, just hang on to them. Let's just remember him right now. Draw close to him. In Jesus' name.